My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Dr. Hassan Sheikh. You don't often hear about physicians en masse taking issues to the streets. As today's guest himself identifies, it tends to be a fairly conservative profession. As well, for all that there are frameworks with roots within the medical establishment that allow for much more resolutely social ways of understanding health and well-being, the everyday practice of medicine tends to be quite focused on the individual, on helping this particular person with this particular problem. Yet in the last few years, some physicians in Canada have been mobilizing. Their first action was a sit-in, and they've had a number of demonstrations, not to mention making regular strong statements in the media on a particular policy issue. This is perhaps explained by the fact that it's an issue that is very relevant to the core activities of physicians, and that represents a particularly cruel and egregious example of a government decision denying residents of Canada access to health care. And the issue, of course, is the 2012 decision by the Conservative government to cut a federal program that for decades had smoothly covered certain basic health care needs for refugees and refugee claimants and to replace it with a confusing, complicated patchwork that leaves many refugees in Canada with no way whatsoever to address certain urgent health care needs. Dr. Hassan Sheikh is a member of the group Canadian Doctors for Refugee Care. The group began among some physicians who came together in Toronto in 2012 and now has members across the country. Along with annual demonstrations, they have also been integrally involved in a legal challenge to the cuts to refugee health care, have done education with physicians and with the general public about the issue, and have worked with provincial governments to find other ways to meet at least some of the needs left unmet by these federal cuts. Sheikh talks with me about the awful impacts of the cuts on patients that he and his colleagues have seen, about the group, and about the struggle to restore access to basic health care for refugees in Canada. We spoke by Skype from Toronto. My name's Dr. Hassan Sheikh. I am a recently graduated family doctor who's doing some extra training in the emergency department. I'm part of this group called the Canadian Doctors for Refugee Care, which is a group that was formed in response to the cuts to refugee health that were made by the Conservative government in 2012. We have essentially a singular focus, which is to advocate for the reversal of the cuts to refugee health and a return to the pre-2012 interim federal health program. Healthcare in Canada is run by the provinces. However, refugees and refugee claimants come under a federal program, similar to First Nations people come under a federal program. And the program that provides healthcare for refugees and refugee claimants is called the Interim Federal Health Program. This is a program that has been in place since 1957 and has been unchanged from 1957 to 2012. So every government that's come through has not had an issue with this program previously. And that program was a very simple yet effective program 
that provided health care to refugees and refugee claimants that was similar to what someone on social assistance would receive. So you had access to things like doctors, nurses, hospitals, but you also had access to things like essential medications, very basic emergency dental and vision care. And this program was very important for refugees because oftentimes these patients have spent their life savings to try and come to Canada to ask for our help. And on top of that, they don't have the ability to get a work permit and then generate the money needed to pay for things like life-saving medications. The government in 2012 announced that they were going to drastically change this program. And initially, they were going to actually cut health care for all refugees. They backtracked a little bit after there was some pressure put on them. They said that they clarified the cuts and government assisted refugees that were brought over by the federal government would no longer be affected. And the reason for that is that based on our commitments to the UN, they weren't able to reduce coverage for those refugee patients. So the new program that came out in 2012 was a very convoluted and complicated program with a whole bunch of administrative roadblocks and bureaucracy built into it. So instead of having one program that was for every type of refugee, now you had three different programs. So if you were a government-assisted refugee relocated from a refugee camp, you got one type of coverage. If you were a privately-sponsored refugee from a refugee camp, you got a different coverage. And if you were a failed claimant, you had a different coverage And then things got even more complicated once this idea of designated country of origin was introduced. And that was that there are certain so-called safe countries. And then if you were from those countries, if you were having a heart attack, you would not have any coverage. If you were suicidal, you wouldn't have any coverage. You would have coverage, however, if you were homicidal or if you were a threat to public health or public safety. And the countries that were included on this list included Mexico which, you know, there's a dangerous drug war happening, and Hungary, where there's a large and well-documented Roma community there that has been devastated by discrimination. So this program that was running fairly smoothly and was uncomplicated and was, in our opinion, very fair and helpful for refugees, then became a very convoluted program, which was an administrative nightmare and left many refugees totally without coverage in very dangerous situations to their health. And on top of that, the fact that the program was so convoluted meant that refugees who actually had coverage were now being turned away from being seen in clinics because it was too difficult for doctors' offices to figure out who had coverage and who didn't. I can give you a couple examples of cases that I've seen personally. One of my very first refugee patients that I had in my residency was a 16-year-old child. He had suffered torture in his home country, and that left him with really terrible nightmares, post-traumatic stress disorder, and a, a really severe depression, and he struggled with thoughts of taking his own life. He had been started on an antidepressant, and that helped him get to sleep at night, helped him deal with the nightmares, and he was actually doing a lot better. When I saw him, it was after his coverage had changed because of the interim federal health program cuts. And he no longer had coverage for his antidepressant. His nightmares got worse, his depression worsened, and with it, so did the thoughts of taking his own life. And so that's a simple example of a child who couldn't access medications that were really helping him, leaving him at a high risk of committing suicide. There's been many documented cases through the Canadian Doctors for Refugee Care, but one of the ones that sticks out to me, because it highlights a number of issues, is 
there was a case of a child who had a history of asthma and was unable to get puffers that they needed. Because they didn't have access to puffers that they could use on an outpatient basis, their asthma got worse. They ended up in the emergency department and actually needed to be hospitalized to treat their asthma. And that's a really strong example for me because one, the patient is getting worse and sicker and we don't like to see children sick. And number two, from a cost point of view, as taxpayers, we're going to end up covering that bill. The hospital bill is going to get absorbed by the hospital budget, which comes from taxpayers. And so instead of spending pennies a day on a puffer, we end up spending $1,000 for an emergency room visit and a hospital admission. There's another example of a patient that I saw actually in the emergency room. He was fleeing persecution and he had come to Canada asking for help from the Canadian government and the Canadian people. And he started to develop this really severe abdominal pain. And he went to one of the emergency rooms in Toronto and was found to have a very large tumor in his liver. He got referred to see one of the cancer doctors, one of the oncologists, and that referral was refused because specialists often aren't reimbursed for seeing refugee patients. So he wasn't able to see a specialist that could help with the actual cancer in his liver. And on top of that, they couldn't get his pain under control because he had no coverage for medications. So he got sent home essentially with no idea what was going to happen to him and no way of helping him deal with this issue. And I saw him again when he came to a different emergency room in just such intense agony. The initial plan was going to be actually to bring him into hospital simply to get his pain under control because he couldn't afford medications on an outpatient basis. So again, that's another example of really suboptimal care that we're providing someone, you know, leaving them living in a shelter, writhing around in pain, and also worse for us as taxpayers to spend that money to bring someone into hospital just to get his pain under control when we could provide the medications to at least keep him comfortable at home. There's a few other points just to clarify some of the, uh, some of the rhetoric from the federal government. One of the things that continues to be mentioned was this idea that the cuts are meant to apply only to failed refugee claimants or, as they put it, bogus refugees. And that is completely untrue. These cuts affect all refugee claimants. And just as in an example, the minister has recently been boasting about the number of Syrian refugees that Canada is going to in the future bring over over 50% of those refugees that are planned to come to Canada will be privately sponsored refugees. Privately sponsored refugees have had their coverage cut. Privately sponsored refugees cannot access life-saving medications because of the cuts to the interim federal health program. So that's the first myth or lie that I want to dispel. And then there's that other point the government continued to hammer home, this idea that refugees are getting gold-plated health care. And it's simply not true. And the numbers, I don't remember exactly off the top of my head because it's been a while since I've looked at this. This idea that we were providing a ton of care for these refugee patients. And the average refugee claimant and refugee patient was billing far less per person to the government than the average citizen. I think it was about like $600 for a refugee patient and thousands of dollars a year for all of the rest of us. 
And so this idea that they were getting a ton of health services and they were draining the federal resources was totally untrue. In fact, if you talk to anyone before 2012 who works with refugees, they would probably say their biggest issue was not being able to convince the refugee patients to access care more because these people were coming from a situation where they didn't really understand the fact that they had access to health care and they had access to medications and there was help for them and we could help them live a healthier lifestyle. Tell me what you can about the founding of Canadian Doctors for Refugee Care. The initial movement from the Canadian Doctors for Refugee Care actually came out of a group of doctors in Toronto. With the announcements, I think a few different doctors had reached out to the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration Canada or their local MPs and tried to go through the regular channels to express their concerns about this program. And when they were met with really no feedback and no ability to talk about the real issues that they were seeing with this bill, they got together and talked about it and decided to try and force their way in to actually have this really important conversation. Interestingly, it actually was doctors that barely knew each other in most cases. A lot of the doctors were from St. Michael's Hospital, which sees a large inner city population and has a strong history of advocating for their patients. So a lot of the family doctors were from St. Michael's. But, for example, two of the co-founders of Canadian Doctors for Refugee Care, Dr. Philip Berger and Dr. Meb Rashid, had barely met each other prior to these cuts. And it was really through people talking to other people they knew that worked with refugees and who had intimate knowledge of the dangers of these cuts you know, just by talking about it, these people have come together and brought more people to the fray based on all of our personal experiences with our refugee patients. So I believe the first action was a sit-in in Joe Oliver's office, who is one of the MPs in Toronto, and a group of 80 doctors got together and drafted a letter of concern and brought their white coats to really be a symbol of our professional responsibility to our patients. And they walked into Joe Oliver's office to bring up the issues they had with the cuts and to try and arrange a meeting. They were kicked out of the office and sent over to the street where they stayed together to protest these cuts and to talk about the changes and how they might affect patients. That was the first action of doctors coming together to really talk about these cuts and form a coordinated movement. And then things escalated from there. The structure became a bit more formal and we started to plan more of our future actions and try and educate the public about what these cuts meant for patients and meant for our communities and to proceed with trying our best to figure out how we can provide care for patients in this environment. Once that sort of first action came about and that momentum was generated, the question was, where do we go from here? And we realized that a local effort in Toronto really wasn't enough. So it was about reaching out to physicians across the country to see what are our experiences with our refugee patients in places like Montreal or Saskatoon or Vancouver. And can we generate a nationwide momentum about this? And through reaching out through personal contact and once things became talked about in the media, more physicians sort of reached out to the group as well. And we were able to generate this list of doctors across the country that were interested in this issue and were motivated to do something about it. I believe that's how this whole thing got started, about planning a national day of action in June in 2012. Key organizers in the different cities were recruited and people were highly motivated 
because of the dangers that they saw coming to their patients. One of the other great things was that we were able to approach different healthcare organizations across the country, places like the Canadian Nursing Association and the Association of Pharmacists and Social Workers. We received very strong statements condemning these cuts by the various healthcare organizations. And so we were able to tap into those resources as well because all of these professional organizations have their constituents and disseminate our message that way. And so we were able to get these great turnouts at the National Day of Action. And over the three years and the four protests that we've done, the momentum has just built and more cities have gotten involved and more organizations have signed on to the point that the Canadian Medical Association was represented this year with the president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Chris Simpson, making a statement in Parliament Hill, and things have continued to escalate. We've had now up to 20 cities this year who have joined in starting from 12 in our first year. And last year as well, we had an international photo campaign where people around the world were sending in photos of them standing with our poster and making a comment of how they were unimpressed with Canada's stance on how they're treating the refugees. We got a lot of momentum this year as well from the federal court ruling last year uh, in July 2014, where Justice Anne McTavish ruled that the cuts were cruel and unusual and shocked the conscience of the Canadian people. And the legal process that led to that decision, was that something that the Canadian Doctors for Refugee Care were involved in initiating and pursuing? Yes. The federal court challenge was done by a few organizations. There was the Canadian Doctors for Refugee Care, which came together with the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers and the Justice for Children and Youth, which came together with as well a few refugee claimants who were challenging the court on the constitutional basis of these cuts. And they were arguing that these cuts were unconstitutional because they were discriminatory based on someone's country of origin, as well as represented a risk to patients' life and liberty. One of the questions that gets asked a lot is about why are doctors and lawyers bringing this challenge to the court? And what it comes down to is that the patients that are affected by this, the people affected by this, are still in the process most of the time of asking the government for help. That puts them at a very vulnerable position. So refugees and refugee claimants are very hesitant to speak out against the government. Things can happen to them that are really cruel and unusual, but they won't say anything about it. And that's why Canadian Doctors for Refugee Care and Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers really felt the responsibility was there for us to bring that to the federal court and advocate on behalf of people who were too afraid to speak for themselves. And the ruling was very clear from Justice Anne McTavish, where she ruled that these cuts were cruel and unusual, and that they specifically put children, pregnant women at risk, and that they shocked the conscience of the Canadian people. The federal court ruled that the government had four months to change the program. And the wording of that ruling is actually a little bit unclear. It's very clear in terms of the ruling against the current program, but in terms of what they've mandated the government do about it, it's a bit unclear. The read from the Canadian Doctors for Refugee Care, and more importantly, I think, from the group of refugee lawyers, is that the ruling really is saying you need to go back to the old program. And in that four-month window where the government had been mandated to change the program, 
Instead, what they've done is add in a bunch of smaller patchworks of programs to try and just get by the ruling. For example, in terms of specifically targeting children and pregnant women, the government added now another class of refugees. So if you're a child, if you're a pregnant woman, you now have coverage under another patchwork of policies. Again, this adds to the administrative nightmare that is this program and the confusion around who's covered and who's not. And at the same time that they're doing this, the federal government is now appealing this decision to try and take away coverage from children and pregnant women that they've been forced to reinstate. The other thing that the government has done is actually go back and take away the order in council through the initial interim federal health program in 1957. So because it wasn't passed as a law, the program doesn't need to go through a vote in parliament or, or anything like that. So there actually is no old interim federal health program for the courts to be able to rule that this government needs to go back to. So in addition to the legal strategy and the National Days of Action, what else has your group been doing to advance this issue? So there's been a, a number of different components to the work that we've done. One of the big pieces as well has been about education of physicians, because one of the issues that we've had is that this program is such an administrative nightmare that many physicians' offices can't figure out who's covered and who's not. So one of the things that we've been trying to do is educate family doctor's offices, walk-in clinics, and physicians in general about how this program works, who you contact, and how you can go about providing care for refugee patients. Another piece has been about educating the public about what these cuts mean. As a group of doctors coming together, we don't have the same sort of media power as the federal government. So there's been a lot of inaccuracies and some might say downright lies about what these cuts have been that the Canadian Doctors for Refugee Care has been trying really hard to dispel. So through interviews, through statements that we've released and press releases, We've been trying to educate the public about what the dangers of these cuts are. And finally, one of the other pieces that we've done has been bypassing the federal government to talk to the provincial governments. We've had statements from essentially every province denouncing these cuts. And we've also worked with various provincial governments to come up with programs that can try and offset the damage done by these cuts. So, for example, here in Ontario, we worked with the Ontario government to implement a temporary refugee health program that would then cover some of the things that were cut when the government made the changes. For example, certain physician visits would now be covered. But again, the process gets very complicated where it gets sent to the federal government program. And if it's rejected, then we can resubmit the bill to this Ontario program. More importantly, we were able to secure the Ontario government's help with providing medications for refugees and refugee claimants. You noted earlier that this kind of organizing is not something that physicians do very often. Tell me about why this issue brought physicians together to do this work, and also a bit about what's specific about doing this kind of work with physicians. There's a number of things about this issue that created the perfect storm that got physicians up and protesting. Medicine is largely a fairly conservative profession, and I think a lot of the times we focus so much on the individual patient interaction, and we sometimes to a fault forget about all the other things going on. But when these cuts happened, and we looked at what was coming, 
And then especially once we started to see the adverse events of these cuts, we sort of realized there's nothing we can do sitting in an office talking to our patient that can help this. Even with the fact that many physicians were seeing refugee patients without getting any reimbursement, we can see them in the office, but what do we do with that? We had no more avenues that we could do from sitting in our clinic. And then the second part was that oftentimes we try and empower patients to do things for themselves, to make changes to their lifestyle or to approach their workplace if they're working in unsafe environments. But with this situation, we couldn't get the patients to actually do anything. Because as I mentioned before, they were stuck in the situation where they're still asking the federal government for their help. So they're too afraid to actually speak out against them. And so that led to this realization that there's really nothing left for us to do except to take to the streets because we had tried the other avenue, which was to talk to policymakers directly, and we were getting nowhere with that. In terms of how it's worked in organizing physicians to protest, there's sort of this worry that doctors are very uncomfortable protesting and taking political allegiances. We tend to really operate outside of that political world. But it's been surprisingly easy to motivate people to work on this issue because once they see a patient and they see what the issue is firsthand, it becomes very clear to them that this is the avenue we had to go down. The further complication ends up being that physicians work very difficult schedules and it's been hard to get people organized from that point of view. And especially a day of action that happens in the middle of the day can be tough to get physicians out. But nonetheless, people have been incredibly motivated to speak out against these cuts and to advocate for their change. What are some of the key things that are coming up for the Canadian Doctors for Refugee Care in the next six months or a year? Certainly the federal election is something we have our eye on. And then the federal court of appeal date is certainly something we're working on as well. When it comes to the federal election, we have signed statements from the three opposition parties, the NDP, the Liberals and the Green Party, and a commitment from them that they would reverse the cuts to the interim federal health program if they took office. At this point, I think the chances of the conservative government changing their point of view is very remote. If Chris Alexander would like to meet with Canadian Doctors for Refugee Care, the invitation continues to be put out there, even though we've been unable to meet with him thus far. But continuing to educate the public is really, I think, our main push coming up to the federal election. And we want to make this an election issue. There continues to be a lot of myths and lies spread by the federal government about this issue that we want to try and educate the public about so that they can sort of see through that issue and continue to hold their candidates' feet to the fire. You have been listening to my interview with Dr. Hassan Sheikh of the Canadian Doctors for Refugee Care about the struggle to reverse the cruel cuts denying many refugees in Canada access to basic health care. To learn more about their work, go to doctorsforrefugeecare.ca. That's all one word, doctorsforrefugeecare.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 